Thanks for listening to Great Battles in History. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear from you. You can write me, Daryl D., at greatbattleshistory at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at The Great Battles. I hope you enjoy the podcast. By the end of the second day of fighting at Thermopylae and Artemisium, Great King Xerxes and his Persians were facing a crisis. The army had been stuck before the middle gate for six days. For all the efficiencies of its commissariat, the enormous Persian army was beginning to exhaust all of the available local sources of food, fodder, and water. Unless the army could force the pass soon, it would need to withdraw in order to resupply itself. By the time this was done, and the Persians able to return to Thermopylae, the main Greek armies would have come up. They would then face 10,000 Spartan hoplites instead of 300. No help appeared to be forthcoming from the fleet, which was blocked from advancing past Artemisium. Yet now the Persians' great strengths in espionage and the operational level of war came to their rescue. Even while the fighting had been raging at Thermopylae and Artemisium, the great king's spies had fanned out across central Greece, seeking information about how to turn the Thermopylae position. At last, at the end of the second day, they brought in a Greek trader who told Xerxes and his generals about the Unapaya path around Thermopylae. Even better, in exchange for an enormous reward, he offered to lead the Persians along it. The trader's name, Ephialtes, remains infamous. Ephialtes is the modern Greek word for nightmare. Great King Xerxes recognized the priceless opportunity he was being offered. He ordered Hydarnas to take the immortals immediately along the Anapaya and fall upon Leonidas's army from the rear. Herodotus records that Hydarnas and his elite guards set out from the Persian camp about the hour when the lamps were lit, in other words at dusk. I don't think modern historians have adequately stressed the impressiveness of the feat of arms that the immortals were about to accomplish. A night march through enemy country followed by an assault on a defended position is about the most difficult of all military operations. The history of warfare is replete with examples of failure. It is a testimony to the skill and supreme professionalism of the Persian immortals that they were able to accomplish it perfectly at Thermopylae. Through the hours of darkness, the immortals climbed the thickly forested slopes of Mount Calidromo. At dawn, they reached the summit of the Anapaya. Posted there were the 1,000 Phokian Hopelites who had volunteered to guard the path. Herodotus writes that the immortals were marching so stealthily that the Greeks were only alerted to their approach by the sounds of fallen leaves rustling and crackling beneath the guardsmen's feet. The Phokians sprang up and began hurriedly donning their armor. Hydarnas hesitated. He had not expected to encounter any enemies at all on the Anapaya. Furthermore, he feared that the hopelites he glimpsed in the dawn half-light were Spartans. Ephialtes reassured him that these were other, less formidable Greeks. The commander of the immortals regained his nerve. His guardsmen instantly shook out into battle formation and began pumping arrows into their enemies. The Phokians now betrayed their amateurishness. Believing that they themselves were the targets of the immortals, they abandoned their blocking position on the Anapaya and retreated further up Mount Calidromo. Seeing the way clear, Hydarnas ordered his men to ignore the retreating Phokians and continue their march. 
the immortals were soon descending the Anapaya path and bearing down on the rear of Leonidas's little army at the middle gate. The Spartan king learned of the approaching immortals shortly after dawn. According to Herodotus, his first warning came from Megistias, a famous seer who foresaw doom in the entrails of the day's sacrifices. More realistic warnings came from deserters from the Persian army, and finally, Phocian messengers hurrying down the Anapaya path. The Greeks at once held a council of war. Leonidas ordered most of the Greek contingents to retreat, but he and his Spartans would remain. The idea developed immediately after Thermopylae and continues to this day that Leonidas chose to stay because the Spartan military code prohibited retreat. In other words, he decided to make a last stand as soon as he learned that the Persians had turned the middle gate position and would surround the Spartans. But as the classicist James Evans points out, nothing in the Spartan military ethos before or after Thermopylae precluded retreat. The Spartans condemned running away, surrendering, or even being defeated. They did not disallow retreating under orders, or if the military situation demanded it. I think the more likely reason for Leonidas's decision was that he wanted to provide a rear guard to protect his retreating troops. If the Persians were allowed to move through Thermopylae unhindered, their cavalry would be able to catch up to and overrun the Greeks in the open country south of the pass. In addition to the Spartans, the Greek rearguard was rounded out by two other contingents. One consisted of the Thespians. Although the 700 Thespians represented their city-state's entire hoplite phalanx, according to Herodotus, they simply refused to leave and forsake their Spartan comrades-in-arms. The Thespians did appear to have been an especially stubborn lot. Indeed, they became something like Greek specialists in last stands. They fought to the death at least twice more, at Delium in 424 BCE and at the Nemea in 394 BCE. The other contingent was the 400 Thebans. According to Herodotus, Leonidas kept them against their will as hostages. Numerous historians, both ancient and modern, have strenuously questioned Herodotus on this point. Already, in the first century CE, Plutarch noted that if the Thebans really were hostages, Leonidas would have been better off sending them away with the retreating contingents. More recently, historians and classicists have pointed out Herodotus's persistent anti-Theban bias. This bias could have been the product of a combination of personal predilection and the fact that Herodotus's sources on Thermopylae were overwhelmingly Athenian or Spartan. Instead of hostages, the Thebans who remained with Leonidas were most likely the citizens of that city-state who had rejected its Medizing drift and had cast their lot with the Greek resistance since Thebes would undoubtedly go over to the Persians as soon as Thermopylae fell, they must have felt there was no point in going home. Great King Xerxes initiated the fighting of the third day of the Battle of Thermopylae at what Herodotus identifies as the hour when the marketplace is just about full, presumably mid-morning, about nine or ten o'clock. Once again, Persian troops filled the western end of the pass, then advanced toward the Phocian Wall at the middle gate. This time, Leonidas did not wait for the assault. Instead, he formed his thousand-odd men into a phalanx and led them beyond the wall, out into the wider part of the pass. Even though Herodotus states they did so knowing that they went to their deaths, Leonidas's move was, I think, consistent with fighting a rearguard action. By advancing in phalanx, he was hoping to surprise the Persians and make them hesitate 
thus buying more time for his retreating men, including his own rear guard, to get away. But the Persians were determined to finally end Greek resistance. Xerxes had ordered officers armed with whips to stand behind their troops and drive them forward with lashes. For their part, the Greeks fought with the reckless abandon of desperate men. The fighting was therefore ferocious. The Persians' losses were even heavier than the first two days of the battle. Their dead included two half-brothers of Xerxes. But eventually, most of the Greeks' spears were broken and they resorted to their swords. At this moment, Leonidas was killed. Any hope the survivors of the rear guard would be able to safely retreat now vanished, for no one was left to give the order. What's more, the Spartans would not fall back until they had recovered their king's body. They succeeded only after much pushing. Herodotus uses the word otismos, in which they flung back the enemy four times. By then, Hydarnes and the immortals had arrived behind the middle gate. When the surviving Greeks learned of it, they retreated past the Phocian wall to Colonos Hill. In a parting shot against the Thebans, Herodotus states that they now broke away from the other Greeks and flung themselves at the feet of the Persians, begging for mercy. More likely, the Thebans joined with the Thespians and Spartans in fighting to the end, which they did with their swords, their fists, even their teeth. The Persians formed a ring around the hill and at last were able to bring down truly overwhelming arrow barrages until the last Greek was slain. As the final act of the Battle of Thermopylae was playing out on Colonos Hill, the Athenian captain Ambronikos was casting off in his thirty-oared galley. He sped across the sea to Artemisium and informed Themistocles of the fate of Leonidas and his army. The Persians were now free to overrun the ports and harbors of the Greek resistance. Although the fleet was undefeated, Themistocles immediately ordered it to abandon Artemisium and withdraw south. When the last of the fighting at Thermopylae was over, Xerxes toured the battlefield. According to Herodotus, the Persian dead in the three-day battle amounted to 20,000, the Greek 4,000. These numbers are, I think, too high, although the proportions are probably correct. Nevertheless, the ground before, around, and behind the middle gate must have been covered with corpses. The great king was eager to find the body of Leonidas, when it was discovered and brought to him, Xerxes ordered it beheaded, and the head set up on a pike where all his soldiers could see it. Herodotus states that this act was not normal for the Persians, who treated valiant enemies with great honor. Leonidas's obstinate resistance had enraged Xerxes. He wanted to make the Spartan king an example and a warning to all the other Greeks. For all of Xerxes's dismay at the Persian losses at Thermopylae, the battle was a great victory for him and a disaster for the Greek resistance. The Greeks had intended Leonidas's advance guard to hold the pass until the main army could come up and make the position impregnable. In reality, the Spartan king could only hold out for seven days, just three of which had involved actual fighting. Furthermore, while the Greeks had shown the tactical superiority of their hoplites over Persian infantry archers, they had been trumped by their enemies' strengths in espionage and operational warfare. Xerxes and his generals demonstrated they knew how to make full use of their victory. The days after Thermopylae witnessed a Persian blitzkrieg through central and southern Greece. The Persians first overran Doris and Phocis, the regions around the pass itself. As punishment for the part they had played in the battle, the Phocians saw their lands thoroughly ravaged and burned. The invaders then swept south into Boeotia. 
As the Greek resistance had feared, Thebes immediately medized. Its formidable hope-light phalanx joined Xerxes's order of battle. Then, just a week after the death of Leonidas at the middle gate, Persian outriders reached Athens. They entered an eerily silent city. For, after abandoning Artemisium, Themistocles' fleet had evacuated the entire Athenian population to the island of Salamis and the city-state of Trozen in the Peloponnese. Only a few Athenian holdouts stubbornly garrisoned the Acropolis, the high hill on which the ruins of the Parthenon now stand. The Persians made quick work of them, using fire arrows to burn down the wooden palisade the diehards had built, then storming the hilltop and massacring them all. With Athens in his hands, Xerxes sent a messenger rushing back to Susa to proclaim the victorious progress of his campaign. For their part, the Greeks were uncertain and divided about what to do next. With the Olympian and Carnean festivals finally over, the Spartans and Peloponnesians had assembled their armies. Instead of seeking battle with the Persians, they had marched no further than the Isthmus of Corinth, the narrow bridge of land connecting the Peloponnese with the rest of mainland Greece, and began building a wall there. The Spartans and their allies clearly intended to defend only their homelands, abandoning Athens and Attica to the enemy. The Greek fleet had retreated to Salamis. At a conference, its admirals decided to withdraw to the Isthmus of Corinth and help the army in its defense. But then Themistocles went in private to the Spartan admiral Eurybiadas and persuaded him to stand and fight at Salamis. Great King Xerxes was also conferring with his generals and admirals about their next moves. They decided their fleet should bring on a final showdown with the Greeks off Salamis. Their reasons for doing so were strategically sound. First, after crushing the Greek navy, the Persians could send most of their own fleet home, keeping only their best squadrons in the campaigning theater. This reduction would help to ease the logistical burden of keeping the enormous Persian forces supplied, especially over the winter. Second, with the Greek fleet out of the way, the entire coastline of the Peloponnese would be open to Persian amphibious raids and invasions. The Persian army might not have to fight its way through the Isthmus of Corinth at all. The Persians were then further encouraged to seek battle by a cunning trick of Themistocles. The Athenians secretly sent his most trusted slave, Sinikos, to the Persian admirals with a message that the Greek fleet was gripped by panic and about to withdraw to the Isthmus of Corinth. If the Persians rode to Salamis immediately, they would catch the Greek ships in flight and score a great victory. It was the Persians, however, who fell into Themistocles' trap. At Artemisium, the Athenians had proven themselves more than a match for even the best squadrons of the imperial navy. However, they could not beat the Persians' greater numbers. In the narrow straits between the island of Salamis and the Attican shore, Themistocles recognized the perfect solution. As dawn broke on a bright sunny day in early September, the great king's armada packed into the channel, fully expecting to fall upon the fleeing Greeks. Instead, Xerxes's Phoenician, Cypriot, Egyptian, and Ionian captains were surprised and horrified to see the Athenian triremes bearing down on them at ramming speed. Their greater numbers now became a hindrance, not an asset, as their ships became tangled and got in each other's way. The Athenians and the other Greeks picked their targets. At the end of the day-long sea fight, the Persians were utterly worsted. Although Herodotus himself gave no figures for losses, a historian of the first century BCE, Diodorus, states that the Persians lost 200 ships 
and the Greeks 40. Whatever the precise numbers, the Persians lost their best ships and crews, leaving the survivors utterly demoralized. The Battle of Salamis was an extraordinary Greek victory and the turning point of the second Persian invasion. It crippled one arm of the invasion force. Without their navy, the Persians could not carry out amphibious operations against the Peloponnese. They now had no choice except to try to fight their way through the Greek armies at the Isthmus of Corinth. Equally importantly, victory at Salamis gave the Greeks a chance to shift from defense to offense at sea. Their fleet could now take the fight to the enemy anywhere in the Aegean, even the coasts of Asia Minor. The fear of the enemy navy striking the shores of his empire compelled great King Xerxes to abandon Greece and return to Asia. If the Greeks took control of the Dardanelles, he would be marooned in Europe and isolated from the imperial power centers. During the winter of 480 BCE, Xerxes left for home, taking with him the bulk of his army. Before departing, the king ordered his most trusted general, Mardonius, to complete the defeat of the Greek resistance. From Xerxes's grand army, Mardonius picked out a large force of elite formations. After their victory at Salamis, the Greeks of the resistance fell once again into bickering amongst themselves over strategy. The Spartans and their Peloponnesian allies had no intention of moving out from behind their wall at the Isthmus of Corinth. Instead, they looked to the Greek fleet to attack the Dardanelles and Ionia. They hoped that by threatening Mardonius's line of communications and possibly raising another revolt among the Greek city-states of Asia Minor, the Persian army would be forced to withdraw without the need for a land campaign. To stress their commitment to a full-scale naval offensive, the Spartans assigned one of their kings, Leotychidas, to command the Greek resistance fleet. This strategy should have suited the Athenians, as their navy would have played the decisive role. In fact, they were angered by it. They had just returned to their devastated city, but were vulnerable to a counterattack by the Persians. They wanted the Greek field army to advance from the Isthmus to defend Attica. In typical Persian style, Mardonius learned of these divisions and moved quickly to exploit them. He sent Alexander of Macedon as an ambassador to Athens. The Macedonian king informed the Athenians that great king Xerxes was willing not just to make peace with them, but also to restore all of their territory and guarantee their autonomy within his empire. In front of representatives from Sparta, the Athenians ostentatiously rejected this offer. In response, Mardonius marched down from northern Greece with his army, and the Athenians were forced to evacuate again. Mardonius then made a second offer of peace. This time, the Athenians sent envoys to the Spartans to reproach them for not coming to Athens' defense. Moreover, the Athenians hinted they were considering accepting the Persians' terms. The Spartans at last realized that if Athens capitulated to the great king, the Persians could use the Athenian navy to attack the Peloponnese. They immediately sent their army with 10,000 hoplites to fight Mardonius. The Spartans were joined by their Peloponnesian allies and all of the other remaining city-states of the resistance, including 8,000 Athenian hoplites spared from service with the fleet. In his history, Herodotus draws up a detailed muster list of this army. It totaled 38,700 hoplites, by far the largest force ever fielded by the Greeks up to that time. Its supreme commander was the Spartan Pausanias, regent for the boy king Pleistarchus, son of King Leonidas. 
For the army of Mardonius, Herodotus gives a figure of 300,000 Persians and 50,000 Greeks. Modern scholars believe this number to be much too high. Their best estimates give Mardonius command of 60 to 70,000 Persians and Medizing Greeks, including 10,000 cavalry. Upon learning that the Greeks had sallied from the Isthmus of Corinth in strength, Mardonius withdrew from Attica to the rolling plains of Boeotia, excellent ground for his cavalry. The two armies eventually confronted each other near the town of Plataea, with a river, the Asopus, dividing them. At first, Mardonius completely outgeneraled Pausanias, amply demonstrating Persian superiority in operational warfare. The Persian general avoided a pitched battle. He kept his footmen safely in a fortified camp on his side of the Asopus. He then sent his horsemen swarming the Greeks, harassing them with hit-and-run raids, cutting up their reinforcements, and raiding their supply lines. His plan was to harry the Greeks into retreat, which would damage their morale as well as provoke renewed divisions and infighting among the resistant city-states. It almost worked. After eleven days, the Greek army ran low on food and water. Pausanias ordered a nighttime retreat to safer ground closer to Plataea. During the night, the Greek army became badly disorganized and scattered. Mardonius now saw an opportunity to turn the retreat into a rout. He led his infantry across the Asopus. Unfortunately for the Persians, they found themselves facing the Spartans and Tegeans, who were covering the retreat of the rest of the Greek army. Advancing to bow range, the Persians set up a wall of wicker shields and shot storms of arrows at the Spartan and Tegean phalanx. According to Herodotus, as the arrows rained down, Pausanias was performing sacrifices. Until he could produce a good omen, the Hoplites could not charge. Sheltering behind their shields, the Greeks began taking increasingly heavy losses. At last, the Tegeans could not stand the barrage any longer. They sprang to their feet and rushed at the enemy. At the same moment, Pausanias received a propitious omen at last. With a shout, the Spartans charged. Mardonius had made the fatal mistake of exposing his infantry to a hopelight charge. His Persians nevertheless fought bravely. For a while, their wall of wicker shields held off the Spartans and Tegeans. Then the hopelights broke it down, got in among the Persian archers, and began slaughtering them. Mardonius was in the middle of the fray, riding a white horse. The Spartans reached him, dragged him off his mount, and killed him. With his death, the Persian army routed. At around the same time as the Battle of Plataea, according to Herodotus, on the very same day, the Greeks destroyed the remnants of the Persian navy. The Greek fleet, under the Spartan king Laotychidas, found the Persians at Mykal, on the coast of Asia Minor. Unwilling to face the Greeks at sea, the Persians had beached their galleys and deployed an army to protect them. Laotychidas landed his marines, defeated the Persian land forces, then burned the ships. The twin battles of Plataea and Mykal ended the second Persian invasion of Greece. They also enabled the Greeks to transform the Battle of Thermopylae from a clear-cut defeat into a heroic last stand that made final victory possible. Thermopylae then became embedded in the cultural heritage of the West as a legend of glorious defeat. In the last part of our podcast, we'll examine how and why this happened.